In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Not long ago, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, an avid golfer, um, was uh, sharing with me in a very excited way uh, a little book called uh, Harvey Pennock's Little Red Book. Uh, some of you know that I am not, as of yet, a golfer in this lifetime. So I understand that Harvey Pennock, though, is uh, well known in golfing circles. And for those of you who are not golfers, uh, he was the teaching pro at the University of Texas for some 50 years and apparently helped to, is that right, 50 years, Texas? I think that's right. Anyway, he helped to launch uh, the careers of the likes of Ben Crenshaw, uh, Kathy Whitworth, uh, Tom Kite, people like that. Apparently, his genius uh, was in, in being able to teach others. He wasn't such a great golfer himself, um, but he was just a great facilitator of other people's gifts. Um, and all through the years, whenever he saw something that he thought would be helpful to somebody else, he would write it down in his little red book. For years, uh, decades, no one but his son was able to see the contents of that little red book. But when Harvey was 87 years old, he was persuaded to share that information with a larger audience. And hence, this little book was published. And uh, this colleague says it is full of information, not only about golf, but also about life. So here is one little episode uh, from Harvey. Two proud parents came to meet me at the club one day, and they announced that their young son had just scored his first birdie. I agreed with them that this was a wonderful event. And then I asked them, how long was the putt that Junior made for his birdie? Well, the two um, looked a little uneasy. And they said, well, the putt was only two feet long. So we gave Junior a gimme to assure his first birdie. <laughs> I have bad news for you, Harvey said. Junior still has not made his first birdie. Not only did he not make that birdie putt, but he now has planted in his mind that he could pick up his ball two feet from the hole and pronounce the putt as made and never have to face the moment of truth. When Junior reaches a higher level of play, where there are no gimmies, he may develop a real anxiety about short putts which could bother him for the rest of his life. My rule is that a youngster, no matter how small, should be required to hold every putt. If Junior grows up thinking he can make the short ones, that will automatically become part of his game. When he plays on higher levels and faces a two-footer to win an important match, he will be ready. It's a point worth pondering. <laughs> the truth is we don't do our children or anybody else much of a favor when we shield them from any risk, when we keep them from any possible disappointment, when somehow we are overprotective 
or when we underestimate their power to grow and to struggle. The truth is we can ask too much of a person. We sometimes expect too much and thereby we crush their spirits. However, it is also true that we can expect too little of people. That is, we can relate down to the lowest level of their potential rather than up to the highest. And this, it turns out, is never an act of love. In fact, it can be quite debilitating. I think anytime you care for somebody, you always face the temptation of expecting too little of them. And I suspect that this was one of the temptations that Jesus faced when he was out in the wilderness in our gospel. You remember how after his baptism, um, he comes up out of the waters, he's not even dry yet, and he hears this voice proclaiming his true identity. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus receives this wonderful blessing, this primal love, but then he is given a vocation that is given to every one of us. He has to live up to his potential. He has to live up to his name. You know the name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves or the Lord rescues. So Jesus was sent into history to take the whole human race and to lift it to a higher level. But I believe that in that process, he was tempted, just like those parents in the club, to relate down to the lowest common denominator of human experience. That is, he was tempted to shield, not to expect too much, to do for rather than to call forth very much from us. It's a temptation that was first pointed out to me in um, one of the real classics of Western literature. I'm thinking of that little fantasy called The Grand Inquisitor, uh, which is nestled in Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Let me remind you of the fantasy. Um, it is set in 16th century Spain, uh, a time when the Roman Catholic Church is at the pinnacle of its power, not only ecclesiastically, but um, politically. And in the story, Jesus returns to Spain, to Seville to be precise. He comes back in the flesh into the great square outside of the cathedral. And though he doesn't say a word, um, that unconditional love that flowed from him when he was here before begins to flow again. And it is the source of healing so a, a blind man can see and a deaf man can hear, and um, people begin to throw their crutches away and walk again, and a, a whole frenzy of excitement begins to build. The word spreads, Jesus has returned. People begin to flow into the cathedral square from every different direction. Well, about this time, the Cardinal of Seville, an old man, who has been wielding power for some four decades and who is therefore hardened by that, he happens to be coming through the cathedral square at the same time, and he recognizes instantly what is happening. 
But rather than fall on his knees at the feet of Jesus, instead he calls the temple guards and he has Jesus arrested. And in this fantasy, that very night, the cardinal comes to visit Jesus in prison. The old cardinal says, why have you come back to hinder us? Why have you come to thwart us in what we're trying to do? He says, Jesus, you were mistaken. You were totally and completely mistaken in your estimate of human beings. You acted as if they have the potential to become heroic sons and daughters of God. When the truth is they are nothing but children and they never will be. They're slave-like at heart. You didn't love them, Jesus, because you expected too much of them. What you could never understand is that human beings cannot be free and happy at the same time. For one thing, they're not good enough to be free. There's an evil inside of them that always comes to the surface whenever the controls are taken off. They aren't good enough to be free. But even more, they are not strong enough. They don't want to make decisions for themselves. They don't want to have to wrestle with dilemmas, have to work out weighty choices. They like nothing better than to find some authority to whom they can just turn over their lives, some dictator or tyrant, someone who will do their thinking for them. They don't really want to be free. He says, the place that you made your mistake, Jesus, was out there in the wilderness, right after the baptism. Do you remember? The Spirit took you into the wilderness to try to show you what human beings are really like and what would work in this world. You remember, he said to you, human beings have only three needs. They need to be fed, they need to be mystified, and they need to be dominated. You remember he suggested you turn the stones into bread because the way to a person's heart is through their stomach. There's no sin, no crime in that. They're just mouths to be fed. Then again, he suggested that you, you go up on the pinnacle of the temple and jump off, dazzle them. They love to be entertained. They want nothing more than to think that they don't understand. And so it's all right to turn their life over to somebody else. And there on the holy mountain, he offered you the mantle of Caesar. He gave you the instruments of coercion and domination. He told you the only way to relate to people is through absolute control of their existence. Ah, but no. You refused those gifts with your lofty idealism. Human beings don't live by bread alone, you said. Human beings do have minds, and they are willing to think for themselves. Human beings deserve something better than to be treated like little children. Well, let me tell you something, Jesus. We, your church, we have accepted the gifts that you refused in the wilderness. We are willing to love people realistically and therefore either leave on your own or know this, 
we will crucify you again. And there is this long silence after the Inquisitor's monologue. And then, in an exquisite glimpse into the heart of God, Jesus, without saying a word, stands up, he goes over and kisses the Inquisitor's head, and then he disappears. I think it's a very telling incitement, insight into Jesus' struggle there in the wilderness. But the truth is, every one of us has to struggle with this very same issue. What does it mean to love our children or to love other people or, for that matter, to love ourselves authentically? Are human beings capable of being heroic, of doing even godlike things? Or are we really just weak, looking to be dominated and controlled? Was the Inquisitor right? Or was Jesus right in his refusal that night in prison and those days out in the wilderness? To be sure, there is plenty of evidence on the Inquisitor's side, right? Politically speaking, people are always looking for the great savior. Whether you're on the left or the right in this country, you're always looking for the one who has all the answers and who will make it all right. Socially, there are people who are very capable but feel like they have a right to be taken care of by the system. You see it in churches where some people just love to hide, turn over the responsibility to anybody else who will be a decision maker or a leader. And you see it in families where one spouse or one sibling seems to carry all the weight of responsibility. Nobody else steps up to the plate. On the other hand, there is evidence on the other side where you remember Jesus refused to relate down, always related up to the highest and the best in those that he met. He didn't succeed with everybody because the reality is we are free. But he did succeed with many. I'm thinking of Simon Peter, who when Jesus first met him was nothing but an impetuous Galilean fisherman. But from the very first, Jesus said to him, I am going to give you another name. You will be Peter. You will be the rock. Because I see in you the possibility of a strong and creative leader. It wasn't instantaneous. With Peter, it was always two steps forward and one step back. But by the time you see him in the book of Acts, in the sequel to the gospel, here is a very different man than Jesus met by the Sea of Galilee in the gospels. Simon did have rock-like potential. And it was Jesus relating up to, calling forth the best in him that was the catalyst for that change. I was thinking about Dostoevsky's piece set in Spain this week, and I couldn't help but think of another Spanish classic. In fact, it is really the telling of Jesus' story. I'm thinking now about Cervantes' great classic, Don Quixote, or some of you may have seen the wonderful musical Man of La Mancha, and that character who is so wonderfully in touch with 
not just the way things are, but with the way things could be. And one of the most beautiful parts of that musical is the relationship between old Don Quixote and this woman called Aldanza. When Quixote first meets her, she is nothing but a cook in, in a little shop. The caravanders come through, and the, and the drivers are all rough men, and they treat her very poorly, as you might expect uh, men in that culture would do. And yet, when old Don Quixote first saw Aldanza, it was as if she was to him his lady. She is the epitome of all of the finest virtues. And so instead of calling her Aldanza, you remember, he always refers to her as Dulcinea. He treats her with a reverence and a respect that is absolutely unique in her experience. And at first she's angered by that because it asks of her things that no one else has ever asked. And then um, she is also confused because she thinks he's not in touch with reality. But he is absolutely consistent in relating up to the best in her, to the Dulcinea that he sees hidden beneath the surface. And as the story unfolds, Don Quixote gets very old. He becomes senile. And towards the end of the story, the woman comes to see him. She says to him, do you remember me? And his mind is clouded. He says, no, tell me, who are you? And she says, I am Dulcinea. What he saw in her and related up to became who she recognized herself to be. And I think that's the gospel. I think about the best news any of us could ever hear is that while we are yet sinners, God sees something better in us than we even see in ourselves. And he relates up to the best that we have in us to be. As individuals, as a church, as a nation, rather than the worst, that we too often are. But then again, you and I have to face that same question, right? We have to ask the question, who am I really? Who are my children? Who are we as a church or as a nation? I guess what I'm saying, it's important what you believe about Jesus, but perhaps even more important, what do you believe about what Jesus believes about you?